This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. My name's George Crowder. I'm on the staff at Church Society. And with me this time is the Right Reverend Dr. Rob Munro. Rob, welcome. Greetings, everyone. It's nice to be on this end of a podcast rather than just listening in. Oh, it's nice to have you. Uh, thank you uh, very much for agreeing to do this. Uh, there is so much that I, I want to talk about and want to ask you about, but I think it'd be great, first of all, just to talk about uh, your own Christian uh, life, your own story, uh, where it all started for you. So take us back as far as you feel comfortable uh, <laughs> and telling us how you first came to know the Lord. And, and, and then I'll ask you about how you came uh, into ministry. Well, I wasn't from um, a committed Christian background. Um, I think my mum would have said she was agnostic and my dad was um, functionally um, had a church background but had rejected various things in his practices. So um, at 18, I would have said I was atheist. Um, I'd found my contact with Christians was um, uh, that they were either elderly and irrelevant or slightly hypocritical. Um, but then I was drummer in a rock band and one of the guys in the band became a Christian and uh, that threw us. Um, we turned about six months mocking him but um, eventually persuaded me to come and meet some of his friends. Um, they were at a youth group in the church in Cheadle, which is um, where I've been rector recently. But um, he uh, persuaded me to sort of find out a little bit more. And for about a six-month period, I was around the fringes of that group, um, asking questions, exploring different things, at the beginning of which I would say I didn't believe it. At the end of it, um, having started to read the Bible for myself, um, I would say, well, actually, this man, Jesus, who I had never really listened to or read about or met anybody who really believed him, is actually the one who made best sense of my life and um, was willing to commit my life to him. So um, that began a bit of a journey. That was in my upper six at school. Um, I went away after about six months around. Um, Cheadle then went away for um, three years doing a maths degree and uh, two years following up on that with an applied theology diploma at All Souls Langham Place because I wanted to actually make sense of how the faith that I'd committed to fitted together. How could I get to know the Bible better? How could I get to um, communicate the faith better? Um, and there was a wonderful course there that enabled me to do all of that. How did you get from the maths degree to the to All Souls Theological Diploma? What, what brought that decision? <laughs> Well, maths, maths I was good at and enjoyed and indeed do, did a lot. But really, it was just that desire to say there is so much more to faith than just a superficial turn up on Sunday. And um, and I wanted to read the scriptures and understand them. So I, it was just an internal sense. It wasn't yeah. anybody at church or a Christian union, just something internally. that. Um, yes, I basically wanted to be able to speak into my faith intelligently to other people so I shared a house with a guy who um, loved to quote Greek at me and things like that although he didn't really know much so I thought well I'll I better get a book that helps me understand what the Bible actually says and um, I think what grew in me was a real desire 
to to make sense of the theology, to know God. To uh, at that point, that. was that that the beginnings of discerning a calling into ministry, or was that? I mean, it's clearly you can see in hindsight there's yeah. something going on if you're internally grappling with desiring to know more and understand the roots and the foundations of, of understanding God. But were you discerning a calling at that point? Um, yeah. So working with the Old Souls team. Um, that really consolidated in me a sense that some sort of full-time Christian work was the direction of my life. I wouldn't have said ordained ministry at that point. I was thinking more like youth work or some other sort of church support work. But um, the course was geared up to not only help teach theology, but also to apply it relevantly and to communicate it effectively as well. And in fact, the assessments were based on all three. So I was put on placements in missions, did missions in um, different parts of the country, um, alongside with Roger Simpson, who was the curate at the time in charge of mission. And uh, and just getting, dipping my toe in, in the water of um, Christian service. So that was um, at the heart of it. And at the end of that time, there were a few reasons to say, well, I need a little bit more life experience to be ready for a, a full-time work. So I actually um, left All Souls. I'd had a part-time job in my second year there at a school. So I actually went and did a teacher training and uh, went back into teaching, but always with that background feeling that um, God was going to open the door for for ministry of some sort. You had a teaching job down in London somewhere, or did you? Uh, no, I was. I went back up to Manchester to train. Uh, lived at home. So uh, in my final year in All Souls, um, I started going out with this wonderful woman, um, Sarah, mm-hmm. who uh, was back in the north, and then I went back up to Manchester. And then she moved to Wales, and then eventually she moved back from Wales to Manchester again, and we got engaged, and uh, we were married in uh, Cheadle. So um, that was part of it as well. I tend to feel like if I was being called to some sort of ministry, it would be a shared call, not just on my own. And um, having a complementarian theology that actually both men and women distinctly, differently called, but actually indispensably needing each other. Mm. Um, that was part of my sense of the timing of it all as well. So yeah, we, we uh, I taught for three, four years um, in a secondary school doing maths and PE mainly, although I trained in my teacher training to do a bit of RE, but they never used me for that, ironically. Your sport was rugby? Uh, rugby was the one I played a lot of in school and college, um, uh, but obviously teaching PE did uh, did everything. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, I was a second row. Um, well, I started a prop and then grew, but um, <laughs> second row for most of my rugby playing career. Finally ended when I bust a rib in my final year playing for Oak Hill Theological College against some young team from London Bible College at the time. And uh, okay, so you're already talking about theological college. So what? What you you made the transition from teaching to theological college? Was that did you just? Where were you attending church at the time, and how did that process? So I'd gone back to the church where I was converted back in Cheadle. So I'd been away for five years, came back, um, had a whole new set of friends, but. Um, we uh, part of there. I was um, involved with a, a group of people who began praying for evangelism, and we used to meet every Friday to uh, pray about the church being more effective at reaching out to its local community. And, and we met every Friday for six months with not much happening. And at the end of that, two things happened. Uh, one is I felt uh, called to start a sort of visiting group within the parish and doing door-to-door work. Um, and one of the others, who was a guy called Andy Hawthorne, set up something called the Message Trust, which um, has gone on to be a phenomenal ministry, uh, working, planting mm-hmm. um, communities, Christian communities through the Eden Project in, doing schools work and a whole lot of 
uh, large regeneration works in churches. But the two of us were in this little prayer group together, um, and uh, he uh, he went off beyond the parish. I devoted myself to the parish. So that was the foundation of um, serving the local church, which has been my passion all along. And so during that time, um, I was encouraged to uh, think and explore um, full-time Christian work, um, which came out a bit out of the blue for me, um, but uh, and particularly as the process wasn't straightforward. I think my first um, interviews within the diocese, they had reservations about whether or not um, I was too naively evangelical or not, even though at the time, um, actually, I was fairly clearly so not naive. I understood and knew exactly where the different traditions of the church were coming from because I'd had experience of that when I was in All Souls. But mm-hmm. um, but actually, that process helped both Sarah and I together to be ready for that call, and we went um, in obedience to that. So, yeah, encouraged by people, seeing my gifts being used. I'd had a chance to preach a few times. I remember my first time going back to Cheadle, actually, first preaching they had a great title that they broadcast on their news sheet, Hated by the World, Rob Monroe is what it said, <laughs> preaching on John 15, I think, so, but anyway, yes. Um, so you moved to Theological College, and um, Oak Hill, was that an, ex- an enjoyable experience for you? What, was it formative? Uh, Oak Hill was great. Um, I I mean, I was very involved in there. I got involved in um, evangelism. We did street work in Wood Green and we did some uh, student work. In fact, funnily enough, only a couple of weeks ago I met um, one of the um, students I did one-to-one work with from Middlesex University who went on, got ordained and is now a chaplain of a school, um, which was lovely. Is this this where you discovered your love of poster painting street street evangelism? (laughs) Indeed. Well, actually, the poster painting originated from the time I was in All Souls because um, Roger Simpson used to do this street work with the open-air campaigners Mm -hmm. um, and roped me in to do it. But um, doing the street work in Wood Green, yes, yeah, paint, sketchboarding, um, sharing a message fascinating really because you can get quite a crowd watching you paint and then as you talk it through the minute you na- mention the name of Jesus mm. people walk you know you can talk about God you can talk about faith and peace and hope and love and but the minute you mention the name of Jesus that's that was striking whenever I've done work on the streets very busy street Wood green I, I remember it well when I was at Oak Hill. yeah so what a place to do uh, street evangelism. There are some other embarrassing things because alongside street evangelism, I used to do drama as well, which sort of is unusual for conservative evangelical. But um, I, I used to do that um, back in my late teens as well, early 20s. So, um, yeah, we did some performance drama on the streets as well, which was um, I'm, I'm just really grateful that mobile phones were not recording things at those days because um, I can remember being in a tra- black tracksuit and pretty much dancing to music and things. So I'm relieved that that's not there for posterity. <laughs> it's not a public record. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it gives, gives us a good picture in our mind. <laughs> uh, so from Oak Hill, uh, where, where did you move then? What, what was your next? Well, I um, went back from Oak Hill to uh, a curacy in, back in Chester Diocese in Hartford, where mm-hmm. um, Paul Gardner was the uh, vicar, who, um, uh, who was lovely. We'd done a mission there from the, the, mm-hmm. um, uh, from the college, and... In fact, they'd just had a curate there for a year, and so we thought, well, there won't be any jobs coming up there. Mm. Um, but in fact, he, this particular person was ready to move after two years, and mm. um, I got a call saying, will you come and um, 
have a look at this and uh, ended up with an informal interview that lasted a day and then a more formal one that lasted a whole afternoon. So, um, yes, Paul was good at his interviews. So we had um, a lovely time there. But um, St John's Hartford was a, a great place to serve, mm-hmm. well embedded in its community with a lot of different um, people involved. And um, I was involved in the student work uh, there, the 20s group, which we, we um, helped organise and, and coordinate, um, setting up some old people's communions and doing things in assemblies. And so um, Paul was great at just, um, because we agreed with our theology, he basically gave me lots of um, space to support and develop ministry, and, and it was a, a wonderful time. It was that connection with Paul got you involved with Fellowship of Word and Spirit conferences? Well, actually, again, it predated that because my mentor, um, when I first came to faith, was a curate at Cheadle at the time who encouraged my uh, theology was a, a one by the name of Wallace Ben, who ah, went on okay. indeed to be the um, Bishop Lewis. So I'd heard of Fellowship in Spirit, Word and Spirit from him. And during my time at Oak Hill, had got more involved in going to conferences. Um, and then fairly soon after that, in when I was in my curacy, I was invited onto the, the uh, committee because mm-hmm. they like young people and I was with young ones. So uh, <laughs> they, um, I was, I've been involved in that for a long time now, since the 90s. And more street evangelism in Hartford. Yes. Poster board went with you wherever you went. Um, <laughs> I did most of the poster board stuff I did in schools from then on, less less on the streets itself, although we did do a big youth event in in uh, Northwich on one occasion. But um, yes, it, it's it's great to keep an attention and, and focus. It's sort of like a built-in visual aid because um, mm. in ministry, when you're sort of thinking about creative ways of helping people visualise what you're saying, um, that used to take me hours, whereas sketchboarding, where you can put your titles up, people are interested, and, mm. and it's a great cheat, really. I'd recommend it. And what um, you went on to Davenham then. How, how, is that just something suggested to you or, or a job that came up? Well, I'm a bit of a fraud in the sense that I've never really applied for things, but um, that is sort of what happened was um, the neighbouring parish to Hartford went into vacancy, mm-hmm. and I'd been helped them out. And in fact, I'd helped out most of the churches in that particular deanery but um uh, helped them out and also used to visit regularly a um elderly lady from the congregation in an old people's home mm-hmm. and uh who who was a wonderful godly lady um gertie in fact i would she, she saw a mini revival even though that she was pretty much disabled mm-hmm. her prayers and her grace had such an impact that there were about seven or eight of the staff and other residents who came to faith in the um, subsequent um, seven or eight years. But she, um, as I visited there, what I didn't know is that the nursing home was owned by um, the lay reader and the warden of Davenham. And they saw my ministry and basically lobbied the bishop of the time to say, can we um, invite Rob to be our incumbent? So um, even though the parish wasn't normally a first incumbency. Mm. Um, I received that invitation and um, uh, interviewed for them, and they said yes, please come, and uh, and began serving there. So I was I was rector there for six years, mm. um, and it was really a turnaround parish. It was um, it was uh, few and elderly uh, in number when um, I went, and God blessed us with new faces and new faith, um, and we helped establish um, Christian witness there 
and uh, mobilize various people into, um, well, first into basic discipleship and then into leadership and then into mission. And so we were um, blessed by a growing congregation. Um, I worked with a team that I managed to pull in, pull in as well. Um, and uh, it was a blessed time. It was hard work. Uh, turnaround situations are always sacrificial. Um, you don't get your way by just being a rector. You serve people, and sometimes that will be costly. And and really, for the first five years, that it was very hard. But we found encouragement in in people who were praying for us. There were one or two folk within the church who we just could rely on when things were very difficult. And um, and gradually, gently loving the people, serving the community. Uh, we saw God changing hearts, warming up. Uh, I remember one long-standing member of the church who was quite resistant to um, to a more biblical-focused ministry. It was somebody who actually had said, well, they, they didn't like it if the sermon went over five minutes um, and used to rustle their sweetie papers all the way through. But actually, at the end of my time, I remember this particular lady who just changed she um she started opening her bible she was hungry to listen and um her character changed she became less of um uh, she had been a notorious gossip but she became more of an encourager of people and uh, and that was sort of one of the milestones that um helped me see you know why god had called us there and and what we were was doing and indeed the right time to move and then you were called back to Cheadle. yes so how, so did, how, did that come, how did that come about? Um, well, again, under the providence of God, what a fraud that I am. But um, I had a phone call. So our third child um, was born. And two weeks later, I had a phone call from the chairman of the Church Society Trust. To He said, actually, he said, firstly, will you, are you sitting down? And then he said, would you like me to ask you to be asked about? Which I thought was a very convoluted uh, way of asking whether I would consider um, moving to Cheadle. Um, obviously, I knew because I was converted there, I knew the church, I knew people from there, and we had a, a love for, for the um, community. Uh, I also meant that I also didn't, I knew the inside track as well. I knew some of the challenges and the difficulties. Mm-hmm. And in God's providence, that final year of our time in Davenham had felt like a seasonal change. We were thinking it would just be a new phase of our calling in Davenham, but we were at a point of change and we knew that. And um, so we um, prayerfully um, offered to go through the process of discerning whether or not that was God's call. And uh, as we went through the interviews, um, that was made clear to us and to the church reps that actually this was the match that God had been waiting for. I don't think I was the first choice, but I think I was the um, the right choice to take Cheadle further, um, which was a relatively large church with um, a good community, a good history of outreach, um, but had become a little bit disconnected from community. And that was one of the big things on my heart was how do we genuinely engage a local community with local you've church. always been a really passionate advocate of community partnerships of working mm. in partnership with other community groups bringing what everybody else has got together mm. uh, for mutual benefit and i mean i guess you've done that a little bit in hartford and davenham but mm. in cheadle it's 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 very much well it, it blossomed so we had i dipped my toe in the water with a couple of different things in the community in in um, Davenham when I was there. We ran a, a massive big jubilee when it was the, must have been the um, Diamond Jubilee um, 
we ran there and oh no it would have been the golden jubilee sorry mm-hmm. of the queen and we'd run um massive events and had a few thousand people came to mm-hmm. it um i'm not that creative so i just tried something similar in cheadle just building serving you know i do believe as as well jesus said the greatest among you is the servant of all that actually it's when we serve people sacrificially mm. that the common grace that we bring opens the door for those conversations about saving grace and mm. that's been my experience really um as we as i've got involved in the church there um i got involved in the community the civic society and the village partnership and uh, eventually ended up chairing the village partnership and uh, putting bids in for massive grants uh, which was one of the end points of my ministry. But we, um, during that time, just knowing people, helping local people engage with the church and helping the church engage with local people. So things like a community cafe was eventually yeah. formed. Took, mm. took us a few years to get that going, but that was, um, we bought out um, the local supermarket so that we could develop the church site. We had a church hall above a supermarket, but we couldn't get access so we had a bit of an initiative to buy out the supermarket and then eventually lease that out to Tesco. So um, you have a franchise and the supermarket is a franchisee. Yeah, the supermarket <laughs> supermarket pays the trustees of the um, charity that run the building and um, and we use their income pay, to pay off part of the mortgage that we needed to do that. But the mortgage is nearly up in a few years, so there will be a steady stream of resource for gospel ministry in Cheadle in the future. I guess that'll be a new st- new phase for the church to become more of a resource church. Yeah, you know, I think it will It will open the doors. Nine, you were there 19 years. 19 and a half years, Which yes. Really, that embeds you in the community, embeds you in the life of the church yeah. in, a, in an incredible way. I mean, are you... Are you uh, uh, an advocate of staying a place in a place a long time. Absolutely, I, I think. So we are a family. You know, the Christian faith calls us into family with each other, but family in a community as well. And I think part of you know part of God's heart for lost people is that He sees a community and seeks. You know, when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, it wasn't because of the politics or because that was where the temple was. It was because people were lost, and His heart went out to them. And I do think that actually um, making those connections takes time. People need to trust you. I remember one man in Cheadle community who uh, I love him. He's great. Um, who got involved. Um, he was a very active member of the local community but had had no connection with the church mm. and um and and you know for years he'd been there 30 40 years in the community um and i got to know him well through the community activities and um built a bit of a friendship up um then his wife was ill and i used to visit her and she had a bit of a faith and we used to meet and talk and pray and read, and read the bible and um and uh when she died um this particular man you know came i mean he saw me ministering to her as she was dying and and took the funeral the sunday after he was in church he's been there every week since and Mm. has come to his own faith and flourishing you can only do that by being embedded and and spending time and sharing lives with people and you can do good because our community has become so insular and selfish generally the church can really be a catalyst for change. Mm. And um, so lots of people are happy to join in when somebody else organises it. Well, actually, we can organise stuff. Mm. We had a Victorian Christmas market that we started years ago that drew in um, thousands of people to the community. And it's a fun market. It doesn't raise money for the church or anything, but it did do some community activity, 
got involved in the whole church. As a result of that, that's on Advent Sunday or the first Sunday of December each year, as a result of that, we saw a 30% increase in the carol service attendance in the mm-hmm. carol services we yeah. had just because people came through the door and thought, yeah. well, this is okay. Maybe we could do it again. I'm familiar with that idea. As a, as a curate <laughs> in Hartford, a long time after you, I, I, I started a similar enterprise in Hartford. There you go. No, I mean, and, and I think sometimes we forget people, you know, if 43, 46% of our our nation still is willing to tick box Christian on the, on a census report and only 5% actually ever go normally, then there is a lot of people who in theory have goodwill towards where churches are at and sometimes we're slow to build the bridges. So people came in, we, our community cafe there which set up, there's been, you know, take six, seven, six, seven hundred people a week come through who are not church connected and it's just a great cafe but it's got Christians who help staff it and talk to people and um, we run groups alongside it so that people can see what's going on and join in if they like and it's about being the family being the family of God to serve the family of the nations and, and I, I, I can bear witness to that I've, I've been with you on a weekend away I've seen you with Sarah and with the church family and it, it was it was really really wonderful, which, which brings me to a quite a difficult question. It must be to come away from that. To well, it must be quite a wrench to to fit to be asked to consider uh, taking on a new role, which would take you away from that. Mm. And I, I wanted to ask you about that um, sense of call that you had, but also dealing with transition a difficult transition how did it first how do you first come about how did it first come about and and what, what how did you feel and what, what happened so the foundations uh, so being called to be bishop absolutely is one of the strangest and hardest things that i think i've had to face in in my faith um and it wasn't something that i had applied for originally either um, uh, I think the foundations for it lay in actually for years through God's providence. I have always engaged in mm. the diocese and in, in groups. I've always said that if I am a part of something, I need to play a part amongst something. So um, I, I was involved in the diocese to a, a large extent. Um, I was chair of clergy three times. I had served four terms on the General Synod. Um, elected um, from Chester Diocese and um, and in various of the committees that the church run and not as because... well as that you'd encourage other people to be involved because yeah. we, we had I mean there's something I've been part of a long time is the group of evangelical conservative evangelical ministers in the Chester Diocese it's now called the Chester Association mm. which harnessed that philosophy mm. of being deeply embedded in the local church but also engaged in the diocese being a blessing not just in it for what we can get as conservative evangelicals but bringing something to be a blessing to the wider uh, church and you have been the person who's been the kind of anchor for that well I think I was originally when that particular conservative group formed which I think after the old nation of women debate years and years ago um, it had. It had. I was secretary just because I was a curate at the time, writing it, and and the group shaped itself around a more uh, a sort of fellowship of word and spirit way of doing things, which was basically to say that it's our theology and prayer that is the foundation of change. 
that actually if God's going to bring revival, it won't just be by being more political, it will become by being more godly and being more faithful in serving and uh, an example. And that that I saw modelled by others, um, including my trade incumbent, but uh, I got involved with that, we replicated that, and, and basically found that if you encourage one another, it gives you confidence to serve. And so you can serve a diocese, even with all of its complexities and challenges, when you know there are people praying for you and that there are people who will call you to account. So we decided radically that rather than have a couple of gurus who led meetings, we would share everybody who was a presbyter would be able to contribute something to the talks that would we would do and, and we could pray and support each other in that. And that fellowship became the foundation of... Um, uh, of uh, being able to make a real difference within the diocese and I suppose those things meant that as over the years because I just stuck around longer um, uh, as I think in the biblical sense eldership is as much about sticking around a long time as it is mm. um, about just a, a, a particular title um, with a, a group of others which sort of organically grew um, I was already serving a more wider constituency. Um, through Cheadle, I was also doing patronage work for seven or eight churches. And um, and so to some extent, that flavour of Episcopal ministry, of where you oversee other overseers, I'd had a taste of it. And I had, deep down, had a feeling that that was something that used my gifts well. But I had no expectation it would ever come to me. And actually, uh, that's why it was a bit of a shock. And particularly the absolute one, because my passion is for parish ministry. And I, I mean, I love Cheadle. I will continue to love Cheadle um, and serving a community. Um, and uh, if I was expecting, if any door would open, which I doubted, it would be into a more regular sort of Episcopal role where mm. I was serving a community and area and helping the church grow which is one of the reasons I hadn't originally applied for the absolute one, because I thought, well, that's not a great use of my gifts particularly. But when encouraged by a couple of people I respected and a couple of bishops said, we would like you to apply, um, Tara and I were just at a stage, a similar stage we had been at the end of our time in Davenham, of, of feeling that a new phase was coming. Mm. And we were planning and preparing and encouraging the leadership team there to be ready for that. Um, not because we thought we were going, but rather because we thought we would be leading it into this new phase. But we'd had a real sense that, uh, you know, post-COVID, um, with some new staff, a new phase in um, building work, that this was going to be a new season for us. Mm. Um, and as it turned out, as we went through the discernment process, we actually thought, prayerfully, maybe we could contribute some good ideas that the new future Bishop of Ebsfleet might take up. Um, rather than it being us. But um, we went through the process all the way along. I've been committed to prayerfully uh, being obedient to where God calls. And as we went through the process, indeed, towards the end, there were unavoidable providences that made it clear that God was saying, this is the moment. Um, but we just simply see it as an act of obedience. So it isn't something that we coveted or wanted particularly, but somebody has to be called and if god does the calling i i trust him too much to not obey um but having said that that makes for huge challenges and it's taken me out of my comfort zone mm. maybe that's not a bad thing because um you can get too complacent from time to time um and i hope i won't lose that passion for people 
and for parish work, which actually, I think, to be honest, is the heart of what an Episcopal ministry ought to be, a presbyter to presbyters, somebody who can encourage and spur them on in that calling to bring the gospel to local people. And that's that's my heart. In the current situation in the Church of England, it is increasingly important for churches to be able to clearly identify themselves as faithful to the Bible, faithful to historic Anglican teaching and faithful on the pressing issues of today, including, of course, matters of gender and sexuality. We hope that identifying as a church society partner church will be an easy way for churches to make that public commitment and to know that they are part of a wider fellowship of churches around the country. Partner churches commit to praying for church society and making a financial donation towards our work. They will have access to a dedicated section of the website full of resources for churches to use and will be able to call on church society staff for advice and support. More information about becoming a partner church is available on our website and by contacting the office. We hope that you will join us in our work of contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. I guess also in your mind is, you know, that the role has, uh, the Maystone role evolved as, as Rod was uh, sort of going through through what he was going through uh, to, to almost establish the role. Uh, I guess in your mind is what, where you are, where you are thinking that you may be able to take it over the next year, five years, or ten years, uh, and what were your initial kind of uh, thoughts on that? What what was what was drawing you to it? What what were you thinking you were going to bring to? It? I guess you get asked that in an interview. What sort of things were you saying? Yeah, well, I, I mean, my my passion is for the local church, and how can we best serve that within the diocese and. Uh, how can we um, help each other be more faithful in doing that? And, you know, at the end of the day, I still regularly pray for revival for our nation mm. and for our church. And, you know, it, it is in the in the hands of God to bring that, but we can play our part in preparing for that. And so um, I, I've had that desire that this role um, can better encourage and enable that local ministry uh, to enable churches who are conservative in their theology to be influential on others to not just sort of sit in a bubble that's separate from everybody else Mm. but actually to be salt and light as we're called to be as christians but to do that from within um the denomination as well um to actually stand up for what is right but to to show that by serving it Mm. seems to me reformed theology which is the undergirding theology of a conservative evangelical talks about God's sovereignty, his truth, his grace, a grace sufficient for the weakest that we have, um, uh, a, a um, an understanding of his sovereignty that means actually we are safe in his hands to serve wherever he calls us to be and um, to make that influence with integrity. And I found I was able to serve my diocese even alongside people of very different understandings with complete integrity. I was never asked to compromise on the theology that I held or the practices that I, I made. And we are in a, a mixed church, but um, as Jesus sort of 
illustrated, you know, there are wheat and tares within the body of uh, the church and, um, uh, you know, in the judgment of God that will be discerned on the final day. But um, for the meantime, we are to serve those who are baptised into Christ under the covenant, who put themselves under his both discipline and grace. We're to work uh, uh, with them. And I think if we can outserve and out-rejoice and um, uh, out-love the people around us, then people will see something of Christ in us. And I, that's what my vision is, really, for the Conservative constituency. We, we're not known for that, and we ought to be, because it's our theology. And I suppose if I can bring a bit of that to bear, um, that may be a blessing. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that, that's a really helpful uh, perspective, isn't it? it? That we want to own our theological convictions and be mm. secure in them, in God's sovereignty. But be a blessing mm. to our communities, and to our diocese uh, and to our denomination so that we're not seen just as a distinct group but as a contributory mm. uh, blessing uh, that we're welcomed and we are loved and are known for being ser- servant-hearted mm. is that the sort of absolutely that, yeah. i mean one of the slogans that we had in our 2020 vision in Cheadle is those who are blessed are called to be a blessing mm. and I, I do think that's a biblical thing i think from abraham's covenant it's part of how do you know, why did God bless Abraham and his family? He did it so the world would be blessed and um, so that the gospel would go out. And we need to be those people. You know, at the moment, you know, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Lord. But for now, we've got the message that we're sharing so that those who don't know him uh, will see him. And we're in a culture that you do need to live what you preach. It's no use talking about the radical love of God if you don't radically love people. It's no use talking about a servant-hearted God if you don't serve people. And to some extent, it is just about embodying what we preach um, as we do that. And, and you know, we're all of us are flawed and fail and, you know, we're not right all the time and we're not going to be successful all the time. But God's grace is sufficient for our weakness and sometimes we need to model that. In fact, Paul sort of talked about that, you know, in fact, jars of clay said that's how the gospel gets seen is because in the jars of clay, the gospel shines out. So, you know, if he can boast about his weaknesses, I think I'm in good company. So with this passion and this positive vision, you, you are launched into the middle of a crisis. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell us about, about it. Just, tell us about the timing of your consecration, because that is quite intricate, really, isn't it? Well, the, the consecration itself um, was particularly interesting because um, I was... I, I did, it wasn't my choice. It happened in a different timescale because in the end, I only had a month to say farewell to a parish I'd served for 19 and a half years and, and Christmas was part of that. So that was painful and challenging and they were lovely and they have been, uh, you know, they've been so supportive and um, uh, I'm so grateful for, for their care and love. But um, the consecration itself happened um, after the College of Bishops and the House of Bishops had met to put some proposals to the General Synod. So after the prayers of love and faith were tabled, but before the General Synod actually voted on them. So I wasn't part of, in fact, I did actually attend as a non-participant observer, the College of Bishops, but I wasn't part of speaking into or voting in the proposals, which I wouldn't have been able to support. But I was um, I was also put in place before the General Synod had voted to change anything. Now, that is a strange providence 
because it did mean um, I've got plausible deniability in both directions. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it, it shows up the challenge because as I sat making my consecration vows to the Lord, you know, it included things like saying, will you pass on in, in, in the faith as you've received it? Mm-hmm. Well, amen. Yes, I will do that. But um, at a time where the question mark is put as to whether the church might change what it's received, um, that was quite a poignant moment. And so oh, oh, days into your kind of sea <laughs> in Ebsfleet, everything you put into print and say has suddenly got this extra dimension to it. You're suddenly having to speak about things that are momentous in the history of the denomination. How, how was that? Um, how was that? It's humbling and challenging. Um, I am no different than the person God has made me to be, and I seek to be as faithful as I can to his word and as servant-hearted as I can to his church. Um, So being given um, the implicit extra layer of authority that an Episcopal role has mm. um, uh, is a humbling thing. And, and and it's also something that I'd right up front want to say, actually, I don't do alone. Uh, if a presbyter of presbyters needs presbyters, needs people around him, and, and I'm grateful for a number of folk who have agreed and covenanted to, um, to pray with me and to challenge me and to help me. Um, I listen to advice from a lot of different people as we seek to be faithful in those. Uh, but in the end, part of the calling is to make some calls and to give some leadership. And I'll do that as much as I can. Uh, my role is complicated mm. in that every diocesan bishop um, has a slightly different relationship to the role of the Bishop of Ebsleet. There are 32 dioceses in which there are resolution you've got, you've parishes. You've got to renegotiate all of those relationships. All of those relationships have to start again because they have to be relicensed. So, I mean, today, a month in, I've had paperwork that gives me those licenses from three. Um, mm-hmm. I've got another 12 in train looking for the dates when the paperwork will come through. And then beyond that, um, another raft, another 15, 16, 17 of a church, um, diocese where... Um, I've yet to um, have direct contact to work out my role. And my role is different in different dioceses. There are some where I'm given responsibility right up to ordination and selection of candidates for ministry and things like that. There are other dioceses where I'm basically supporting in troubleshooting mode to help when um, a particular crisis has arisen or where there are particular challenges. And at the moment, of course, there are many. Mm. Um, so my role, although it's serving complementarian parishes with that theology, um, actually more of the crisis saying complementarian theology, that men and women are equal but different, that we have different roles in family and therefore in marriage. Well, of course, that's rooted in uh, a view of um, marriage, that mm. actually it's one man, one woman for life. And, uh, and therefore, complementarian parishes are hit right at the foundation of our theology by changes in any pretended uh, any prospective changes in um our understanding of of marriage um which um obviously means that that foundational work is creating a lot of um a lot of activity a lot of words a lot of fear um, but god is still on the throne the gospel's still true we are still uh, called to share it and show it and to live for him 
And so that's the the challenge is to not lose heart, but rather to see this new season as a season where our witness is needed even more. Yeah, I mean, your role is to be a pastoral provision for complementarians, Mm. but you've been launched into being a voice for orthodox views on marriage. Um, (laughs) And and it must be quite difficult to try and work that out (laughs) because... Well, I've always felt, I have felt always called to serve the whole church. Mm -hmm. Um, And as chair of clergy, for example, in Chester, I was serving a whole variety of churches, not all of whom I would agree with and not all of whom I would receive the ministry of necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I would, um, I did feel called to try and enable to bring encouragement, help, Bible truth as much as I can to the whole team, if you like. And uh, and that's where I see a, a call to um episcopal ministry a, a bishop in the church of god is a bishop that is mm. someone who yeah. is set aside to be a presbyter to presbyters at the end of the day i'm not um you know i'm i can serve any christian yeah. in an episcopal role and i'm happy to do that but i can only do that under the jurisdiction under the license that is granted by each um diocesan bishop so um although that's not a spiritual oversight um, because I'm not accountable to my ministry to them, it sets the legal boundaries in which I can minister. So um, that's the distinction, which um, I, I think has been helpful in navigating some of the yeah. concerns that we've had at the moment. Uh, there is a lot of concern about that particular dis- distinction mm. amongst ordinands, um, yes. um, who, who you've been to see some of them, uh, uh, that distinction between legal jurisdiction and pastoral ministry yeah. and it it's it's a very difficult issue to grapple with because ha- however people are feeling um, uncertain or bewildered about what's going to happen in July ordinance in, th- in the third year or are going to be ordained soon mm. uh, have, are feeling very concerned that they're they're, in, they're, they're they're the most vulnerable because they've got to make an oath of canonical obedience mm. to a bishop who has more than likely voted for the the motion <laughs> Uh, and and you've you've given a helpful paper which is on your website about that. But I think I, I mean I there are still ordinands who are saying, but this is a, a pastoral act when when a bishop um, is there with an ordinand rec- receiving an oath. That, so the, yeah. I mean the Church of England is an established church. That is, it's a church established by law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's what makes it different than other denominations or in other churches in 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 the UK at least in in England particularly, um, and because of that, um, the bishops in their office function with a legal oversight and a spiritual oversight, mm-hmm. and and in an ordination service that's explicit. It talks about in the licenses people receive the power of the ordinary and the chief pastor, mm-hmm. and those are slightly different. The ordinary is the label that's attached to the legal responsibilities that are given, and those are um, uh, outlined, you know, in canonical obedience. So the law, which is not the bishop's law, it's the law under which they serve too. Mm. The law sets the boundaries for where ministry can happen, and that's a good thing. So, for example, in safeguarding, somebody needs to be able to call people to account legally. Um, because to violate safe, safeguarding has a legal implication on on things. So um, uh, the role of an ordinary is to provide that legal oversight. 
Now, ideally, that should be alongside the role of chief pastor, that is, pastoral ministry, to bring the word of God and the ministry together. But the Bishop of Epsfleet's role has been set apart explicitly saying that pastoral and sacramental ministry can be delegated, can be given to a different bishop than the one who is the ordinary. So when I serve in pastoral and sacramental ministry, I'm doing it as a bishop. Mm. And uh, and I'm in, empowered, um, if I'm given permission, to do that in different places. Uh, some bishops are very gracious and will say, you do what you like, wherever you like, just let me know. Um, uh, others are very um, focused on which churches I can and can't do that ministry in. But at the end of the day, when I do that, I do it as a whole ministry. And, and that distinction is there. It's not ideal, no. but in an established church, we are under law. And the law of the Church of England is the law of the land. So that's where the complication comes. Um, and will it solve all the problems that may arise? Uh, I, I don't think it will solve all of them, but the conscience issues that we have... We should not be conscientiously giving a power of the law uh, to the person of the bishop. Rather, the law under which we sit uh, is above the bishop, and therefore we serve the law when we take a jurisdiction. But we serve the Lord when we um, submit to the pastoral ministry of a bishop. So I, my understanding, um, that helped me in, in my own wrestlings with the issues. Um, can I make promises, legal promises, under the law to the Lord, regardless of who's present? Of course I can, because, you know, if you're ordained or if you're consecrated, you're called to serve by the Lord, to serve his church. In the end, it's the Church of God, not the Church of England. It is his church, and therefore we serve. So that legal and spiritual distinction, or sometimes temporal versus spiritual, is a real thing. In, in scriptures, it's there. Um, for example, um, when in Romans 13, 1, Paul says, be subject to every law and authority, he was speaking of Nero, the one who was burning Christians at the stake and putting them up on, on the walls and, and lighting his bonfires with them. That seems like, how can you say, obey a person like that? And yet, um, you know, Paul says, no, you obey, you honour the role, honour the office of um, the emperor or of the king, as as two Peter as one Peter three says, honor the king. Um, we can honor the office without receiving their ministry. So when in John says, "Don't give hospitality to people who are teaching falsely," don't do that. But that's not what's happening when you honor the office of somebody in oversight. You don't honor. You can submit to the law that Nero oversees. You don't have to submit to his personal ministry. Mm. And that's why we say our obedience canonically is in all things lawful and honest. Mm -hmm. It's not in everything. It's not to the person. It's to the law. And the law is ultimately the law of God, not the law of a bishop. I guess this leads us on to the question of um, what sort of provision are we looking for if in July there is little change in, in, in how we see things in terms of the the effective change of doctrine in the church. Um, I guess a question from your perspective is, the Bishop of Absolute is, is a, a pastoral provision for those who are complementarian. Mm. It means that I can receive your ministry as, as my bishop, and I do, um, and and I am, and, and you're also orthodox on sexuality as well. 
so I do have orthodox oversight from a bishop who cares for me. Um, what more is required is a different issue because this is where what's happened with what what may happen or possibly will happen with the uh, the House of Bishop proposals is that the whole denomination makes a shift. Uh, and it's not simply that we have a, dis, a, a difference of opinion on a secondary uh, sort of ecclesiological issue. Mm-hmm. It, the, 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 there's a move by the main church, uh, and the general. There's a lot of strong feeling that we need to have some dissonant relationship. There needs to be a sense of separation, but also a degree of unity uh, in, involved in it. What? How does? The, how would that differ from what? Your role as an abbot. What? What? What is? What is? What so, extras needed? So, so, so to be clear, firstly, um, my hope and prayer is that the church will pull back from the brink of mm-hmm. doing this at the moment, and I'm working that. Surprising. Well, it is, and but I, I, you know, that is, it has to be significant. We don't want to burn bridges before mm-hmm. um, actually um, there is some sort of requirement to do something in response. And so, and there are real reasons to hope and suggest that they may come back. You know, the um, the extra amendment that said uh, that we should do nothing indicative of a change of doctrine needs to be tested both legally and pastorally and personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my prayer is that the obvious things that everybody else can see will be understood and seen in the House and the College of Bishops. Um, but having said that, um, the, there are two sides of the question. One is what's strictly necessary for conscience, and the other is what is required for um, consistent flourishing, if you like. Mm. The flourishing question is the more um, relevant one because, um, bluntly, the provision that I am is probably not, well, it's definitely not sufficient to satisfy the long-term flourishing of um, evangelical convictions in this area. And the reason I'd say that is because um, the experience that I'm having personally is that, you know, um, 10 years on from a settlement that made provision for complementarians, very quickly it gets forgotten. At um, It's forgotten sometimes at applicable level. Um, it's certainly forgotten when you talk to some of the archdeacons and mm. things like that because you get pushed to a margin and therefore the norm becomes something else. Mm. Well, the only way to prevent that is to have consistent ways, consistent ways of training, selection of uh, ordinations, um, and also consistent Episcopal provision that keeps those Episcopal promises, which is are primarily actually doctrinal and pastoral. That, um, in, in essence, the prayer book's version of consecration service says that a bishop is there for doctrine and discipline to keep people true to the faith that they've received and keep people to follow rightly into the moral authority of God so we're we're called to do that and we would need bishops who can do that consistently and that is difficult if there is not um, a, a, the heart of jurisdiction if the person who is legally overseeing you cannot provide that and um, my prayer is that all the bishops would actually match those two things, the pastoral and the jurisdictional. At the moment, because of the differences within the college, um, we have something that is not ideal. Um, for the future, therefore, we, there would be a need to have bishops 
um, an oversight of bishops who can administer the jurisdiction as well as the pastoral. Yeah. Um, and that now what that would look like there are different creative ways that that could be done um, it could be done by um, making the bishop's role more collegial one of the fascinating things for me is um, dealing in a conservative constituency that had a, uh, has had fairly public um, figures who've fallen from grace because of um, uh, having an over concentration of power mm. where they've been isolated and exercised it um, inappropriately I'm now called to a bunch of people who often look quite solitary with an overabundance of power. Mm. Um, and even if that power isn't actual, it's more moral than it is um, uh, jurisdictional for bishops. Nevertheless, some of those lessons learnt by the Conservative constituency are lessons that are yet to be learnt by the Episcopal one. So maybe a more collegial approach might be one way of doing that. Um, certainly an assurance that within each diocese there'll be some sort of consistency. Our prayer, of course, is transformational. Our prayer is that those um, biblical truths and those historical norms will take root again within our denomination. And, you know, slightly under half of the Synod and um, across the church, a lot of healthy churches uphold those values and need to be supported in them if the Church of England have a future. So, you know, we are called to do those things. Um, some of the language we talk about structural provision and things like that that's what that means is having um an oversight from somebody who can give integrity to both theology and oversight practice um uh, there are options that are being explored and will need to be explored further that in the end i think for the long term health of a constituency it requires people in that role um and at the moment that will be a big challenge and besides, there's only one of me in a lot of churches, so I'm not sure that um, that will suffice um, to provide the oversight that's needed. I think uh, going back to where we started, that idea of being transformational is something you want to be a catalyst for amongst complementarian evangelicals. Um, just in a well, final few words, uh, right now, how, how, how would you like to encourage us to, to be that, to be transformational even in in the situation we find ourselves now well um simply put we've got to keep the main thing the main thing know god better in all of politics the biggest thing is to to make him our priority so pray pray not just as the thing that fills in on meetings but actually pray passionately for god's mercy and grace and seek his face Come under scripture, be accountable to the word of God as much as you can. That's It starts with our relationship with him. And uh, if there is any hope for change, it comes by a move of his grace. So firstly, do that. Pray. Make God your priority. Make mission your priority. In the end, there are 95% of most people's parishes have no living um, self-conscious living relationship with Jesus Christ mm. and that is an even bigger issue mm. than anything that's going on in the church you know if Jesus wept over Jerusalem why are we not weeping and, mm. and at our lack of, of, of ability to do that and some of the background to this debate is you know a, a church that's sort of confused about how it can speak intelligently into a culture that's changed well um, you know, those who uphold the word of God find a different countercultural way of living, and that's what we need to live and proclaim and serve. So don't stop mission for the sake of that. And sometimes 
we're good at protesting, but less at sacrificing to get out and, and do stuff. Um, and then stand together. Um, you know, be connected. Make yourself accountable spiritually to other people, but also stand together in, in the way that you uphold the integrity of our convictions in these debates. Um, that might well be, you know, the support of the CEC approach. Well, there has been say, a surge of, of just fellowship amongst yeah. evangelicals, which you, you can really rejoice in. And it's absolutely necessary because mm. we're not called to stand alone in these things. We're called to stand together, to support each other, back each other up. And whatever the future will look like, it won't look like a bunch of isolated people. I don't believe the church is a bunch of isolated congregations. I do believe that God unites us into a body that means that we're interdependent. So let's do that and be that more than we perhaps have done in the past um, to, to stand together in those things. And I think at the heart of that, you know, play a part. Don't stand apart, but wherever you can, play a part in doing that. Um, one of the concerns that I would have is that sometimes we've distanced ourselves wrongly from engaging with people because we felt somehow we're going to be corrupted by being in a mixed economy or mixed group of people. I'm struck by Jesus' example. You know, he was always told he was dodgy because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and not just the those people, but also the religious ones. He was worshipping in a temple run by, no, you know, people who didn't believe the resurrection who were entirely financially driven political people in the Sadducees. <clears throat> he hung out in the uh, synagogues with the uh, legalistic, um, judgmental Pharisees. You know, he was there alongside bringing grace and truth. And we need to follow his example. If we claim to be his followers, let's do that and be there. So you can play a part. There are some things you won't be able to do, but do as much as you can, because the need of the nation is bigger than the needs of some little lobby groups we actually have to love people bigger than that and more than that to be um, his church. Rob, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating and uh, and uh, we, we will be praying for you in your ministry and may the Lord bless you in all, in all you do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for all those who persevered through the podcast. Well done. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app and we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.